CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Harbin here with you. Boy, a lot of news going on. But I wanted to start out with my old friend and writing partner, Lamar Waldron. He is a political commentator, JFK historian and author. The books that Lamar and I worked together on are Legacy of Secrecy, A Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination, Bobby Kennedy, The National Security of the Mafia and the Assassination of Martin Luther King. And his most recent book, as well as Ultimate Sacrifice, his most recent books, Watergate, The Hidden History, and The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. And Monday was the arrest of the Watergate burglars, was the anniversary. Today is the date that the 18-minute gap was created in one of Nixon's White House tapes. And Sunday is the date of Nixon's incriminating smoking gun tape, the day that it was recorded, which led directly to his resignation. So we're right in the middle of all this stuff. This is our fourth annual show with Lamar looking at the latest parallels between Trump and Nixon. Lamar's latest book, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. But today we'll be talking about his book, Watergate, The Hidden History. Lamar, welcome to the program, or welcome back to the program. Great to be with you for this fourth annual Nixon-Trump Watergate show. Really? And you basically predicted Trump's presidency six months before the case, based in part on the research you had done on Nixon. So what are some of the most important parallels between Nixon and Watergate on the one hand and Donald Trump? Well, let's start out with just Nixon and Watergate. What are the most important things that people are unaware of broadly? Yeah, because I think probably got some listeners that didn't hear our previous three shows (laughs) starting in 2016. So yeah, so just to hit the very quick high points on just Watergate, because people talk about it on TV as if, you know, all that got figured out. Of course it didn't. There were 70 prosecutions of people, you know, not 10, not 20, not 30, 70 guilty pleas or indictments, okay? And the biggest thing is the Watergate arrest occurred in June of 1972, and yet it took more than two years until August of 1974 to get Nixon out of office. And 72 is the election year, just to remind people. Well, and of course, the big thing is 
just four and a half months after the Watergate arrest, which was big news all over the country. It was no secret. Richard Nixon was reelected in one of the greatest landslides in history. So as we'll talk toward the end of the show, where we're looking ahead to 2020, yeah, people that think that Trump is for sure going to get defeated in 2020, you know, history shows that may or may not be the case. The other big things people don't realize, you know, so there were two special prosecutors, not just one independent counsel. There wasn't one Watergate burglary. There were four attempts there, plus an earlier successful attempt at the Chilean embassy in Washington, D.C. And most discussions of Watergate don't even talk about what they were after and why. Basically, they were after information that could have exposed Nixon's earlier crimes. So basically, you had a president committing new crimes in the hopes of hiding old crimes that he didn't want to come out that involved organized crime. And here's a big thing that floors me today. Donald Trump is still withholding many, many important Nixon Watergate files today about the main Watergate burglars, people like Bernard Barker and Frank Sturgis, the whole mastermind overseer of the the Watergate plumbers team, as they were called, E. Howard Hunt, you know, who was a very faithful guy to Nixon. So a lot of their top secret files have never been released today. So is it fair to say that Trump is holding them back, or is this more of the institutional inertia of D.C.? It's specifically Trump because those records involving Hunt and Barker and Sturgis are all covered under the JFK Records Act that Congress passed unanimously back in 1992. And so on three different occasions, Donald Trump has, all those files were supposed to be released uh, a year and a half ago. And on three different occasions, Donald Trump has kicked that can down the road, you know, had the National Archives release some stuff that the news media, you know, then, you know, throws them a little bit of meat and, and they don't really notice the big stuff. But right now, those files are aren't scheduled to be released, I believe it's until 2021. So why would Trump be protecting the legacy of Nixon? Well, I think one big reason is because Trump and Nixon had personal ties. I mean, they met, they personally met through the offices of, or the good graces, rather, of Roy Cohn, one of the most notorious and despicable mafia lawyers in history who got his start with Joe McCarthy and actually inadvertently helped to bring McCarthy down. They didn't intend that to happen. And then, of course, Roger Stone. So Roger Stone is just, you know, admitted and written in one of his books in great detail. He was, you know, because Stone loves Richard Nixon so much. He has the famous Richard Nixon tattoo on his back. And he was working on, I think, the Reagan campaign early 80s, and they wanted to get Roy Cohn involved. And that actually then led to Stone. It was, I believe, the person who got Cohn, you know, because Roy Cohn was basically Donald Trump's mentor. You know, this despicable lawyer who didn't try cases in courts, really. Roy Cohn operated on blackmail, threats, and intimidation. And that's who Trump openly admitted back in the 80s was his mentor. And so basically, Cohn and especially Stone got Trump and Nixon together, and it was Richard Nixon who actually predicted, was the first person to actually predict that Donald Trump would run for and win the presidency. Nixon 
according to Stone, you know, tried to say that was Pat, Nixon's wife's opinion, but Stone made it really clear. Now, that was Nixon's opinion. So Nixon recognized that this guy could really, you know, fulfill the Nixon legacy. Not able to start, finish. That Nixon recognized that Donald Trump could fulfill the Nixon legacy some years down the road? I mean, it's difficult to believe. Like I say, it's really, really well documented. And when you look at all of the, you know, the stuff that Trump did to get elected and that Nixon did to get elected, I mean, they're pretty much hand-in-glove stuff. Now, Roger Stone obviously worked with both men. Roy Cohn worked with both men. Um, Paul Manafort, he was, Lee Atwater was a partner in the company with Paul Manafort and putting together the Willie Horton ads for George Herbert Walker Bush. Senior and, and, and for and Reagan. Manafort goes all the way back to the seventies. I mean, so that was my yeah, question: just, Does Manafort go back to Nixon too? No, Manafort. I believe he first surfaces in the mid nineteen seventies. Okay, but, so but, in but, the Jerry but, Ford but, administration. But, but what you had was you had people like Manafort and Lee Atwater who saw what had been effective for Nixon, and then with Atwater and Manafort both, they first apply it, you know, to Reagan and then to Bush and then you know Manafort to Trump. So I'd love to just go through a few of those basic tactics. Yeah, they're pretty much the same. Let's do it in just a moment. We're talking with Lamar Waldron. Specifically, we're talking about his book, Watergate, The Hidden History, and the parallels between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. And not just the parallels, the actual associations, the links between these two men, how their presidencies are similar, and what Watergate might inform us about a Trump impeachment. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's our fourth annual look with Lamar Waldron, author of Watergate, The Hidden History, of the relationship between Trump and Nixon. So, Lamar, you wanted to go through a few of these bullet points here. Yeah, I mean, the basic techniques that Nixon used were so successful for him, and that Trump used them, which was how I was able to predict Trump's victory, sadly, four and a half months before he was elected. I hate to use that term where Trump's concerned. But first off, the number one thing that Nixon perfected, you know, starting even before he ran for president, back when he was vice president, was fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smears, which a Republican senator, I believe, in the early 50s coined that as fibs. And so if you think about it, almost everything we're going to talk about today or everything that Trump ever does fits into either fear, ignorance by spreading lies, bigotry, or smears. And they worked great for Nixon, and they worked great for Trump. One of the other things they use often is what I call the opposite of the truth trick, which is you know, part of the ignorance part. And that's where if you listen to what Trump is saying, like it is Orlando rollout, Almost everything he's condemning the Democrats for are things that he himself is guilty of. And yet, because he gets out in front and hits them hard and in ways that most Democrats are too polite to fight back, that actually sticks, not just with Trump's base, but with a lot of you know, undecided people in the middle. The third thing are what we would call the McCarthy cone tactics, which are basically bigotry and smears. I mean, it's like smear, 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 attack, 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 never apologize. And for Trump, that has worked. They both had Nixon and Trump enemies list. I mean, Nixon actually had physical enemies list. Trump pretty much doesn't hide. He's very public about his. Nixon and Trump were also great at playing the victim. I mean, Nixon 
before he was elected president, he was a rich man who had been vice president for eight years and was in political wilderness for a while. And, and of course, Trump you know, claims to have had a lot of money, certainly has a lot of fame, and yet they're constantly able to play the victim to their base. And like I say, unfortunately, some people in the middle divide and conquer is one of their other big techniques that they use. And, you know, that's whether it's on abortion or immigration or whatever. There's no gray. It's like you're here or you're there, and then you guys fight, when really a lot of that stuff is just a smokescreen to hide other, either funneling money to the wealthy or other crimes, people like Trump and people like our governor here in Georgia have committed. Next to last thing is politicizing the FBI. I mean, back when the Kavanaugh hearing was going on, you had that period of time when people were going to the FBI, walking in FBI offices, calling the FBI, saying, I've got information on Kavanaugh, and the FBI apparently had been instructed to say, uh, why are you calling us when you're saying this guy committed a crime? We're the FBI. Why should we care? Which I hadn't seen that kind of thing, frankly, since the aftermath of the FBI and the JFK assassination. And so politicizing the FBI, and then last but not least, threatening the news media. I mean, that was a big part of Nixon's enemies list. I mean, Trump saying the New York Times is committing treason. I mean, it's just, it's the things you almost wouldn't expect to see in America, and yet it works. Remarkable stuff. We'll be back with the Lamar Waldron, Watergate, The Hidden History is the book we're talking about, and the associations between Donald Trump and Richard Nixon, and how this can inform us as we possibly head toward a Trump impeachment. So yesterday for Father's Day, uh, Louise and I went out and climbed a mountain. Well, part of one. <laughs> and boy, am I sore. And, uh, you know, then I had to go back and sit in my, in my office chair. And, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm working on this next book. And it's like, ah, why? Because it's the X chair. The X chair provides customized support in an office chair. I mean, when it comes to supporting perfect posture, providing ideal back support, no office chair compares to the X-Chair. The secret is the X-Chair's dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL. This patented feature is what sets the X-Chair apart from every other office chair in the world. Ideal posture and support equals comfort, and when you're comfortable, the hours spent in the office honestly fly by. Feel the DVL difference for yourself. Try an X-Chair for 30 days completely risk-free. X-Chair is on sale now for 100 bucks off. Go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. You can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels for your X-Chair. That's xchairtom.com xchairtom.com. Tom Hartman here with you. We're talking with Lamar Waldron, his most recent book, Watergate, The Hidden History, and not actually his most recent book is The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. But, and Lamar and I wrote two books on this topic together, Legacy of Secrecy and Ultimate Sacrifice. And we're talking about how Trump is basically using the Nixon playbook 
Nixon predicted that Trump one day would be president. These guys knew each other. They had associations through people like Roger Stone and Roy Cohn and so on. And Lamar was just telling us about how Nixon perfected this technique of FIBS, F-I-B-S, fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smears. And Trump has been using that since 2016 and will be using that as we go into the next election. The McCarthy-Cohn tactics, the enemies list, play the victim, the divide and conquer, politicize the FBI, threaten the news media, all this stuff. Lamar, what are your describing? Describing here sounds to me like fascism. Well, you're exactly right, Tom. It is fascism. I hate to say it, but just before Nixon resigned, after the Supreme Court had ordered the release of what's called the smoking gun tape that just made it clear to everyone that Nixon had been at the heart of Watergate, had been obstructing justice. I mean, you just couldn't deny it because he was saying it. The Supreme Court ruled, yeah, executive privilege, we're overruling that. This is too important. And yet still... The day Nixon left office, between 29 and 30 percent of Americans still openly admitted they supported him. And I hate to say it, some of this research goes back to the late 40s, after World War II, when scientists wanted to see that they didn't want that to happen again, right? And so the sad fact is, between 29 and 30 percent of Americans, almost a third of Americans, are basically fascists. I mean, if you read the old dictionary definition of fascism, most white conservative Christians would vote for that tomorrow, mm. you know, because the merger of state and corporate interests along with belligerent nationalism, is that what you're talking about? And a conservative alliance, basically. Right. That's it, you yeah. know, and they would go for that. So, I mean, look at all the ways that Trump and Nixon were both fascists, ordering and inciting violence. I mean, Trump literally on TV order, you know, get that guy. Nixon, you know, in his hard hats and having the plumbers attack people. Nixon, now Nixon, as far as we know, went farther than Trump. Nixon actively planned to kill Jack Anderson, to have the plumbers. A uh, reporter, an investigative right. reporter of the day, the most, yeah. The most famous reporter in America before Woodward and Bernstein. Right. The famous reporter. And Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg, the guy who leaked the Pentagon Papers and, you know, famous activist. Yeah. He's convinced Nixon's plumbers were going to kill him, and my research shows that since the two plumbers who were actually targeting him were both working for Godfather Santo Traficante of the Mafia, both those men had killed people before, they had both been part of the CIA Mafia plots to kill Castro, yeah, Ellsberg's probably right. Now, Trump has not gone that far yet. But, but look at the other comparisons. Nixon and Trump, they both loved brutal foreign dictators. I mean, Nixon got tons of money from brutal foreign dictators. Trump gets money from foreign dictators. In fact, Nixon's love for Central American brutal dictators sowed the seeds of today's immigration crisis. Right. And also, get this, speaking of the immigration crisis, both Nixon and Trump both you know, made plans for what we, I would call concentration camps. Yeah, that term concentration camps, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez used it, and all the Republicans are like, oh, you can't talk like that. It seems to me like Democrats calling Trump's concentration camps concentration camps, this is the strategy that Republicans have always used, which is go right to the most brutal characterization you possibly can of what the Democrats are doing and use that word regardless of outrage. Seems like a wise thing to use it, but it's also a factual thing, is it not? I mean, I remember visiting Dachau in Germany. There were no death camps in Germany. Hitler put those all outside. Germany and Holland and Poland, Auschwitz, Belsen, Belsen, all those. The ones inside Germany, there were hundreds of them, were actually concentration camps. They were labor camps. 
exactly right. And I'm glad you mentioned Dachau because they had something at Dachau called standing cells, where you would put up to four people in a small cell, and there was no room for anyone to even sit down. I mean, that was a, literally a form of torture the Nazis used at Dachau. And Trump's own Department of Homeland Security, the Inspector General report recently, said that at one of the, what they call detention camps, I call a concentration camp for the people crossing the border, there were 76 people in a cell designed for 12, 155 people in a cell designed for 35, 41 people in a cell designed for eight. 900 people total in a facility in El Paso with 135 person capacity. I mean, that is literally really, really great deal like Dachau. But when we look at the history of concentration camps in America, I mean, America's got a long, sad history of that. I mean, going back to most people don't realize in 1934, Georgia Governor Eugene Talmadge, the father of Senator Herman Talmadge, the guy that Biden mentioned yesterday, in 1934, Georgia Governor Eugene Talmadge declared martial law, put 37 labor activists in a concentration camp. In 1950, Nixon, along with McCarthy, helped to get the 1950 Internal Security Act passed, where communists had to register, and if you were a communist front organization member, you had to register, and of course they were calling the ACLU a communist front, right? People don't realize there were six concentration camps established in 1950, but most people don't know about them because they were never used, but they were established. And then we flash ahead from 1950 to 1969-70, and Nixon's deputy attorney general, uh, his Rod Rosenstein, Richard Kleindies, told The Atlantic that demonstrators against Nixon should be, quote, should be rounded up and put in detention camps. So, again, it's... You know, you can't make this stuff up. It's really true. We're talking with Lamar Waldron, his book, Watergate, The Hidden History, talking about the parallels between Donald Trump and Richard Nixon. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And how understanding those parallels can A, help us fight Trump, and B, inform any potential impeachment investigations and impeachment of Donald Trump. I may be coming to your city soon on our book tour for the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. I'll be in New York, Washington, D.C., Portland, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago, and Minneapolis. Here I come. More information is available at TomHartman.com. Today we're reading from a book by Elizabeth Holtzman, one of the former U.S. Congresswomen who sat on the committee that considered impeaching Richard Nixon. And this book is titled The Case for Impeaching Trump. Just came out. This is from the first chapter titled Impeachment. When Donald Trump's presidential election victory was announced in the early morning hours of November 9, 2016, like many Americans, I rubbed my eyes in disbelief and dismay. Two questions raced through my mind. What had become of America that a man so unfit, so small-minded, so mean-spirited could be elected? A man whose ethnic and racial bigotry had set the stage for his presidential run when he called Mexicans rapists and made racist birther attacks on President Barack Obama, whose vulgarity and misogyny were laid bare in the Access Hollywood tape when he bragged about forcibly grabbing women by their genitals, whose performance at presidential debates showed him not only flagrantly ill-informed, but manifestly unwilling to get informed? My second question was how much harm this man would do to America as its 45th president. I have my answer now to the latter, less than two years after the election. President Trump has damaged American democracy far more than I would have guessed. 
He has refused to protect our system of free elections from foreign interference. He has relentlessly attacked the administration of justice, in particular the investigation into a possible conspiracy with Russia regarding the 2016 presidential election, putting himself above the rule of law. He has failed to separate his personal business from the country's flaunting the Constitution's requirements, and he has violated the constitutional rights of the people in separating children from parents at the southwest border without due process of law. And to cover up these misdeeds, he has systematically lied to and assailed the press. These are great and dangerous offenses that the framers of our Constitution wanted to counteract and thwart. They provided a powerful remedy, impeachment. Many tremble at the word, fearing how President Trump's supporters will react to an impeachment inquiry, worrying that it will only further polarize an already deeply divided nation, or that there will not be enough votes in the Senate to convict him if the House of Representatives votes to impeach. Just calling for an inquiry will be viewed as a Democratic Party attack on the head of another party, a kind of coup d'etat. It's easy to find reasons to be anxious, but I'm not afraid. As a junior congresswoman, the youngest ever elected at that time, I served on the House Judiciary Committee that voted to impeach President Richard Nixon for the high crimes and misdemeanors he committed in connection with the Watergate cover-up and other matters. Through a thorough, fair, and above all bipartisan, the committee acted on solid evidence presented in televised hearings that riveted the nation, handing us the blueprint for how impeachment can be successfully pursued today. In our 225 years of constitutional democracy, the Nixon impeachment process has been proven to be the only presidential effort that worked. Though Nixon resigned, the only president ever to do so, two weeks after the committee's impeachment vote, he did so to avoid the certainty of being impeached and removed from office. We became a better nation for having held the president accountable. All of which raises two further questions. Should we be considering the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump? Will we again become a better nation by pursuing that option? To answer, we need to set aside President Trump's unremitting attacks on the environment, on our close allies, on the Affordable Care Act, and any disagreements we have over policy, as well as any personal animus, and simply ascertain whether he is engaged in the kind of egregious conduct that would meet the constitutional standards for impeachment and removal from office. This means we have to focus sharply on his potentially impeachable offenses. In doing so, we will find it useful to compare them, when possible, to similar offenses by President Nixon, found to be impeachable by the House Judiciary Committee in 1974. Here is a list of some of President Trump's potentially impeachable offenses developed as of this writing. A possible interference with or obstruction of the administration of justice and an abuse of power. On May 9, 2017, Trump fired FBI Director James Comey, who is investigating both his national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and Russia's connections to the Trump campaign in connection with influencing the 2016 presidential election. Two days later, President Trump admitted to NBC's Lester Holt that Comey's firing had to do with that, quote, Russia thing. In other words, President Trump acknowledged that he was trying to shut down the FBI investigation into his own possible conspiracy with Russia. Flynn has since pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. The Comey firing uncannily echoes Nixon's firing of the special Watergate prosecutor for seeking highly damaging information about that president, a brazen defiance of the rule of law that triggered the start of impeachment proceedings against Nixon, a second possible interference with or obstruction of the administration of justice, and an abuse of power. President Trump has persistently and publicly attacked those heading the Russia investigation, 
including Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and has repeatedly condemned Attorney General Jeff Sessions for recusing himself, suggesting that he wants to fire any and all of them in order to get control of the Russian investigation. He actually did give an order to fire Mueller. The case for impeaching Trump by Elizabeth Holtzman. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. I'll be on the Bill Maher Show on uh, Saturday in Los Angeles, Stephanie Miller and I, 3 p.m. Uh, in L.A., Seattle, 7.30 p.m. Sunday, Tuesdays, Berkeley, the First Church, 7 p.m., Friday, Chicago, 7 p.m., the Frugal Muse Bookstore in Darien, Saturday in Minneapolis at Next Chapter Booksellers in St. Paul, formerly Common Good Books, just uh, heads up. We're talking to Lamar Waldron, JFK historian, author of Legacy of Secrecy. Watergate, the hidden history, and the hidden history of the JFK assassination. We're specifically talking, this is our fourth annual conversation with Lamar, about the relationship, parallels, and interrelationships between Donald Trump and Richard Nixon. Back in our first conversation, in fact, it was months before the election, Lamar said, basically, based on all this stuff, I predict that Donald Trump is going to win the White House using the same techniques that Richard Nixon did. And sure enough, uh, uh, Lamar was right. Um, so now we're talking about how can we use this information to have an informed discussion about Trump in a way that might lead to his impeachment or certainly his defeat. So, Lamar, I, I don't know how much you want to amplify on this that Trump and Nixon both used racism to turn out the vote. They both used intolerance and hatred, even when it wasn't racially directed, uh, you know, Nixon against the hippies and whatnot, Trump against liberals and Democrats and that kind of stuff. They both are masterful manipulators of the corporate media. And also, Nixon went beyond bending the law, beyond simply being a bad politician to actually breaking the law and being a criminal. I'm assuming that you're seeing a parallel there between Nixon and Trump as well. Oh, so many, so many. But, but before we dive into that, let me just point out a couple of other things that you just said. One, in terms of the racism and intolerance, which is, of course, another part of fascism, right? Um, you know, the sad fact is racists have been providing the margin of victory for many Republicans since Nixon in his so-called Southern strategy, which was kind of a soft form of racism that didn't use the N-word, that, you know, moderates could feel, you know, okay about voting for Nixon. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that all conservatives or Republicans are racist, but I'm saying it's simply a statistical fact that racists are the margin of victory for a lot of Republicans since Nixon. He's the guy that perfected that. And, of course, here's another sad fact. Both Nixon and Trump are really more elitist 
than racist. Nixon in the 50s was regarded as definitely a moderate on race, and it was only in his 1960 campaign. In fact, most blacks in America were still voting Republican, you know, from the... uh, All the way back to Lincoln, yeah. And so it was only the 1960 election when Martin Luther King was arrested and put in this horrible jail in South Georgia, may well have been killed there. And, you know, there were all these appeals to do something. And Nixon, he wouldn't speak out. He Nixon was vice president at the time and running against John Kennedy for president. Exactly. And Vice President Nixon, who had the power to even do something, you know, he could have sent federal marshals to get him out of this half a step from a chain gang. He didn't. JFK did. And that was a big switch. But the sad fact is Nixon then turned to racism, you know, for votes. Trump's the same way. People forget. I, I've heard just on TV the other day, and it reminded me, Trump used to be really big with all the African-American rappers in America. They would mention him in their songs. They would hang out with him. Trump even dated a black woman after one of his many divorces. So for them, it's just a cold, calculated strategy for votes and money. And they play on that conservative and, and, and basically, you know, moderate anxiety over losing their white privilege, and they just do it so well. You mentioned the manipulation of the media. A lot of that started with Nixon and a guy named Roger Ailes that was Nixon's media advisor. And, of course, Ailes went on to found Fox News, and we see how that goes. You know, the other sad fact is the mainstream media pretty much supports Republicans. They help to make Trump the nominee. I, I never heard anyone in the mainstream media say Trump was an alleged billionaire or a self-proclaimed billionaire. No. CNN, he was a billionaire. And so they ignored Trump's incitement by the tweet of what turned out to be that horrible Pittsburgh massacre. Even the white nationalist it his Orlando kickoff just the other day. The mainstream media pretty much ignored that. So, so that's what we're all dealing with. But still, even with all that, as you said, it's not just hardball politics. It goes into actual breaking of the law. And, and we'll take them one thing at a time, okay. starting with the illicit money. I mean, both men profited hugely from the presidency. Uh, Nixon, by, by basically when he was shaking down corporate America and wealthy people, when they wanted favors or legislation, and he would get money for his campaign, he would also oftentimes literally pocket some of that money. And profiting from foreign governments, they both do that. Again, Nixon would just get direct contributions from, like, the brutal dictator, the Shah of Iran, or uh, Marcos, the dictator of the Philippines, or the Saudi dictators. I mean, they would just literally give, you know, the president cash. And then some of that cash would be hidden through shady real estate deals, you know, and that's, hmm. that's Donald Trump's middle name. But Richard Nixon was a big part of that. That's how he increased his net worth so hugely during the time he was president. He used his best friend, B.B. Rebozo, to handle a lot of those real estate transactions because Rebozo had a, his own little private bank that they could launder that money to. And in fact, they both, you know, Trump is now under investigation from Deutsche Bank and stuff for the laundering of money. A lot of people think that's at the core of all the Russian stuff, Nixon literally laundered his money with the help of B.B. Rebozo. But one thing I have to add, at one point, they actually bought a coin laundry down uh, north of Miami to use for their money laundering operations, because, of course, a coin-operated coin laundry, you know, you, you can't 
prove what money comes in to that, you know. Right. If, so, you sh- if you show up with a, with a thousand dollars in quarters, <laughs> you know, where'd that come? Well, right. That or, was. Or you just say, oh yeah, hey, we a lot of clothes got washed this month. We, right. you know, we suddenly got a hundred thousand dollars, and it's know? all in but cash. It's, <laughs> yeah, and, and then hiding and not paying their taxes. People oftentimes forget that when Nixon gave his "I'm not a crook" speech, that was not at all about Watergate. That was after it turned out he was hiding his taxes, and then he had practically paid no taxes. And so when you add, like, the not paying the taxes to getting all this illegal money, because when I say shady, Trump's shady real estate deals go back to the mid-'80s. He was one of two developers in New York City that would sell condos and buildings to blind corporations where you didn't know who the real buyer was. Most people wouldn't do it. Most developers wouldn't do that because, you know, that was oftentimes going to be mafia money or drug money. Trump was one of only two developers that would do that. And so that, wow. that brings us literally up to today and Deutsche Bank and all that money laundering and all the stuff that's not in the Mueller report. Yeah, which is pretty astonishing. How did Nixon and Trump get involved in all these crimes? I mean, did these guys, were they lifelong career criminals? Pretty much, yes, exactly. Huh. In other words, let's look at Nixon. When Nixon was a teenager, you remember the old carnivals that would come to town and that sort of stuff, and they would have these sideshows, and they would have these games where you'd win stuff and everything. Oh, I, I, I worked in one when I was 16. I came to Nuego, and they gave me a part-time job running the, the, the concession where you shot a BB gun. and, and <laughs> So, yeah, I know I, them. I, I remember those carnivals. I knew that about you. We've known each other for so many I didn't know that. But, so get this. When Richard Nixon was 16 and 17, Prescott, Arizona, they would have their big you know, rodeo carnival days, and different people would own the concessions. And the people that did what was a, a shady game called the Wheel of Fortune, it was a mob-run game, and they hired young you know, Richard Nixon to do that game. And, and they basically taught him how to fleece people with a smile so they'll come back and let you fleece them again. Oh, is that and, and, Nick, and, and so Nixon actually used that when he was in the military. He never actually saw combat or anything, but Nixon actually got some of the money he used to run for Congress in World War II from, from, from playing poker with his buddies. And he won, in today's money, it would, I, I, think, I, I think in today's money we could be talking about between $100,000-$200,000 in poker. And Running yet, rigged games, fixed games. Well, you know, probably they were rigged, but but the important thing is the people still loved him, even though he was shafting them. The people who also helped to fund his first runs for office were the Los Angeles Mafia, a guy by the name of Mickey Cohen. They helped to finance, along with Howard Hughes and the Big Eastern Banks, his runs for Congress, then when he ran for the Senate, and then, of course, they're still supporting him when he's vice president for eight years, and then... When Nixon is finally president, elected in a very close race in 68, takes off at 69, the plumbers, two of the plumbers, as I mentioned before, they were active, you know, full-time mafia members for Santo Traficante. Basically, most of the plumbers had worked on Nixon's plots to kill Castro right before the 60 election. That's why he used these guys to burglarize the Watergate and the Chilean embassy, because Castro had prepared a report that had all that stuff in it. So Nixon had a long mafia history, and when we come back, we can talk about Trump's long mafia history. Wow. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Tom Hartman Program. Talk media for the sane among us. Yes, we're still here.
Lamar, we've talked about how Nixon was a criminal literally from his teenage years. When I worked at that carnival, it just seemed like good, clean fun. But anyhow, what about Trump's criminality? You know, what do we know? Uh, what are we speculating about? Uh, well, 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 we know that he had mafia contacts starting at least in the 80s. They probably started in the late 70s. But, of course, he's got New York's top mob lawyer as his mentor. And, and in, in the construction trades, the mafia was kind of a fact of life. But, but you didn't have to embrace the mafia and the mafia's top lawyer the way that Trump did and make the mafia's top lawyer in New York City your, your mentor. And, and like I say, a lot of the people buying the Trump condos and buildings and stuff like that with the, these blind deals where you... You had no idea who the real buyer was. You know, that's, that's drug money. That's mafia money. And then, of course, Trump gets into the gambling business in the casinos in Atlantic City. You've got a lot of mafia stuff going on there. And then you get into organized crime in terms of Russia. By the time we get into the turn of the century, and no real American banks will own Trump any money. And so then, as, as I think it was Don Jr. that said, oh, yeah, we're getting you know, our, our, all our money from Russia now. But, you know, one of the reasons that Putin hated Hillary Clinton so badly was that she had basically agreed when one of her ambassadors said that Putin and Russia was basically a, an organized crime government, essentially. And so Trump has needed organized crime from the get-go to, to keep up that appearance of him doing that. And that's why it was easy for both of these men to commit treason to win their election. Nixon with the very corrupt government of South Vietnam, where Nixon cut the back deal to keep the Vietnam War going so he could win the 68 election, because he knew if the Vietnam War ended right before the 68 election, the Democratic candidate, uh, Hubert Humphrey, uh, then the uh, vice, vice president, president under Lyndon Johnson, who had just right, cut right. a peace yeah, deal with South Vietnam, yeah. He, he would probably win. I mean, Nixon barely eked out, you know, a 500,000 vote, popular vote victory anyway. So, and then, of course, Trump commits treason with Putin. I mean, for all that Trump did, flipping the, uh, I believe it was about 45,000 votes, getting 45,000 Democrats to stay home and getting ginning up 45,000 Republicans in those three critical states to go out and vote, that's what made Trump president. And they use that micro-targeting that they got from the Trump campaign, and why Mueller doesn't want to go into that, I, you know, who, who knows? But in any event, so we didn't have treason. Trump has said he's going to take Putin's help again, and he's already torpedoing Trump is, his executive director is torpedoing the Election Assistance Commission. His Republican senators are blocking reforms needed for safe elections. And so it's just all set up to happen again. It's truly astonishing, and, and you're absolutely right. And, and I think a lot of people are scratching their heads why Mitch McConnell and why the Republicans in the Senate would be supportive of, of Trump's efforts to prevent Congress. I, I, I will tell you exactly why when we come back. Why are the Republicans, particularly Mitch McConnell, being so aggressive in blocking the legislation that the Democrats passed in the House that would have offered money to the states and technical guidance and assistance to tighten up their electoral structures so that they can't get hacked by China, by Russia, by any country that might want to intervene in our election? Two big reasons. One is that not only did Putin deliver the election for Trump, but it could have, and this is hazier, but it could have also given the Republicans one, possibly two more 
Uh, Senate seats. If Mitch McConnell had had even one less seat, let alone two, he pretty much, you know, because you still might have had Susan Collins in there, he wouldn't have been able to have shoveled through, like, all these horrible judges, like this most recent one that, that they approved yesterday. And, and, so, and, so, and so that's one part of it. And, and, of course, he got Donald Trump instead of Hillary Clinton as president. And then number two is, I, I think McConnell and the Senate Republicans, they know that if they want to hang on to the Senate, Russia's help, hey, bring it on. They need that. Hmm. Once you've drunk that Kool-Aid, you're going to drink it again. That's why they're willing to overlook so much of Trump's obstruction of justice, his ridiculous evolution of executive Did Nixon have, to, have Republicans covering for him the same way Trump does? Totally, totally, totally did. Unfortunately, Senator Howard Baker, who later... From Tennessee. Howard Baker was the Republican that was the number two man, right. the head Republican on the Senate Watergate Committee, which was the big committee. And, and he is the guy who said, you know, what did the president know and when did he know it, which was great. But before that, before he had seen so much evidence, he leaked through his top aide, Fred Thompson, who later became an actor, they leaked so much information, and other Republicans leaked so much information to Nixon. That's one of the reasons it took over two years from the Watergate arrest to get them out. And so, you know, yeah, Nixon had his own Mitch McConnells and Lindsey Graham, only they weren't in the majority, but you had so many conservative Democrats, these older Southern conservative Democrats in Congress that, yeah, they gummed up the works for an awful long time. Yeah. What should the Democrats be doing? Should they be moving toward impeachment? How should they be characterizing Mueller? How should they deal with him if he doesn't testify? And if an impeachment hearing begins, how do you see all this playing out? If you look at the Clinton impeachment, that was relatively short. That went from October to February. And it failed, right? Right. At least in terms of the Nixon efforts, the investigation, the impeachment, yeah, it took ages to get that stuff Two and a half years, really. But it worked. I mean, it forced him to resign. I don't think there's a problem with running the impeachment during the election year. I'm one of those people that think, do that, because you have a lot of your senators and and a lot of, you know, iffy purple district members of Congress who can be put in a very difficult light. And so I, I think if the... Democrats continue to get evidence if they can put Mueller on the spot. And here's what I would do with Mueller. I would start using, you know, message discipline, get this out there. Did Mueller investigate Trump's money in Russia? If he didn't, why didn't he do it? And if he did do it, well, you know, what's the status of that? Well, there's no reference to it in the Mueller report. Exactly. But we do know there, I think it was, I saw different numbers, about a dozen referred investigations that are that were still going on when the report was written some of those could be deutsche bank could be or Mueller may have just backed off so i think if the plus plus you have letitia james and you know the ag of new york state looking at this stuff well the important thing for Mueller is i think if the democrats start raising those you know those very specific points and they literally put Mueller on the spot. You're going to force Mueller to have to come in and testify in public, basically to make his case for why he did or didn't do that. And then, then I think that, that starts a ball rolling that gets the attention of a lot of these middle-of-the-road moderates, and you're going to start to see the polling go up then. But I, I really do think a lot hinges on getting Mueller to testify, getting him to testify in public, and make him 
I mean, if, if every member, if every Democratic member asks those, you know, three questions, those points about his investigation or the lack of it into Trump's financial ties to Russia, because if you think about it, that was, that's the basic thing. That's what everybody has always thought. That would be where the connection is. Trump's still been acting guilty. You know, he acted guilty for years. He's still acting guilty. Something is there, and either Mueller didn't want to find it or he found so much he had to refer it out to one or more. You know, right. we need to know that. And if the Democrats will press him on that and almost the exclusion of everything else, I think that will start to get them the support they I, need. I, I think yeah. you're right. And, and Nixon refused to release his taxes because he was trying to cover up his own crimes. I think the same is exactly. true for Trump. We need to make exactly. that point. Exactly. That's going to start to whittle away at the stuff. And the more the Democrats can harp on the Russia stuff, you know, there's a 15 to 20 point gap between Trump's popularity among his base and Putin's popularity. And a lot of those people are older, people like you or I who remember the Cold War when Russia was the villain in every comic book, movie, and TV show. And the more you can hit that Russia connection, you're going to start to lower the enthusiasm. Because I tell you, when you look at enthusiastic voters, Trump is only trailing by 2%. Wow, wow. And the Fox News average age is in the 70s. Lamar Waldron, thank you, Lamar. Thank you, Tom. You're listening to Tom Hartman. If you believe that you're not being snooped on or that nobody cares about your online data, well, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're wrong. Hackers, governments, and ad companies all slurp up your data. That's why I recommend getting the software that I trust to protect my online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data. ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. I never go online without ExpressVPN, and you shouldn't either. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN, costs less than $7 a month, and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your online privacy just like I did with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com Tom. That's expressvpn.com Tom for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com Tom. That's expressvpn.com T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com Tom. Tom to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman program. It's the Mueller report. We're on page 105. He's talking about Dimitri Symes and the Center for the National Interest, a policy, a foreign policy think tank that has good contacts with Russia, and how Kushner and Jeff Sessions were involved with this fellow Dimitri Symes. The memorandum proposed building a small and carefully selected group of experts to assist Jeff Sessions with the campaign, operating under the assumption that Hillary Clinton is very vulnerable on national security and foreign policy issues. The memorandum outlined key issues for the campaign, including, quote, a new beginning with Russia. B, National Interest host, National Interest is the magazine of CNI, hosts a foreign policy speech at the Mayflower Hotel. During their March 24th phone call and their March 31st in-person meeting, Symes and Kushner discussed the possibility of CNI hosting a foreign policy speech by candidate Trump. Following these conversations, Symes agreed that he and others associated with CNI would provide behind-the-scenes input on the substance of the foreign policy speech, and the CNI officials would coordinate the logistics of the speech with Sessions and his staff, including Sessions' chief of staff, Rick Dearborn. In mid-April 2016, Kushner put Symes in contact with senior policy advisor Stephen Miller and forwarded to Symes an outline of the foreign policy speech that Miller had prepared. 
Symes sent back to the campaign bullet points with ideas for the speech that he had drafted with CNI Executive Director Paul Saunders and board member Richard Burt. Symes received subsequent draft outlines from Miller, and he and Saunders spoke to Miller by phone about substantive changes to the speech. It is not clear, however, whether CNI officials received an actual draft of the speech for comment. While Saunders recalled having received an actual draft, Symes did not, and the emails that CNI produced to this office do not contain such a draft. After board members expressed concern to Symes that CNI's hosting the speech could be perceived as an endorsement of a particular candidate, CNI decided to have its publication, The National Interest, serve as the host and to have the event at the National Press Club. Kushner later requested that the event be moved to the Mayflower Hotel, which was another venue that Symes had mentioned during initial discussions with the campaign, in order to address concerns about security and capacity. On April 25, 2016, Saunders booked event rooms at the Mayflower to host both the speech and a VIP reception that was to be held beforehand. Saunders understood that the reception at which invitees would have a chance to meet candidate Trump would be a small event. Saunders decided who would attend by looking at the list of CNI invitees to the speech itself and then choosing a subset for the reception. CNI's invitees to the reception included Sessions and Kislyak. The week before the speech, Symes had informed Kislyak that he would be invited to the speech and that he would have the opportunity to meet Trump. When the pre-speech reception began on April 27th, the receiving line was quickly organized so that attendees could meet Trump. Sessions first stood next to Trump to introduce him to the members of Congress who were in attendance. After those members had been introduced, Symes stood next to Trump and introduced him to the CNI invitees in attendance, including Kislyak. Symes perceived the introduction to be positive and friendly, but thought it clear that Kislyak and Trump had just met for the first time. Kislyak also met Kushner during the pre-speech reception. The two shook hands and chatted for a minute or two, during which Kushner recalled Kislyak saying, we like what your candidate is saying. It's refreshing. Several public reports state that, in addition to speaking with Kushner at the pre-speech reception, Kislyak also met or conversed with Sessions at that time. Sessions stated to investigators, however, that he did not remember any such conversation, nor did anyone else affiliated with CNI or the National Interest specifically recall a conversation or meeting between Sessions and Kislyak at the pre-speech reception. It appears that if a conversation occurred at the pre-speech reception, it was a brief one conducted in public view, similar to the exchange between Kushner and Kislyak. The office found no evidence that Kislyak conversed with either Trump or Sessions after the speech or would have had an opportunity to do so. Symes, for example, did not recall seeing Kislyak at the post-speech luncheon, and the only witness who accounted for Sessions' whereabouts stated that Sessions may have spoken to the press after the event, but then departed for Capitol Hill. Saunders recalled, based in part on a food-related request he received from a campaign staff member, that Trump left the hotel a few minutes after the speech to go to the airport. Item subset C, Jeff Sessions' post-speech interactions with CNI. In the wake of Sessions' confirmation hearings as Attorney General, questions arose about whether Sessions' campaign period interactions with CNI, apart from the Mayflower speech, included any additional meetings with Ambassador Kislyak or involved Russian-related matters. With respect to Kislyak contacts, on May 23, 2016, Sessions attended CNI's Distinguished Service Award Dinner at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. Sessions attended a pre-dinner reception and was seated at one of two head tables for the event. A seating chart prepared by Saunders indicated that Sessions was scheduled to be seated next to Kislyak, who appears to have responded to the invitation by indicating he would attend the event.
Sessions, however, did not remember seeing, speaking with, or sitting next to Kislyak at the dinner. Although CNI board member Charles Boyd said he may have seen Kislyak at the dinner, Symes, Saunders, and Jacob Heilbrunn, editor of the National Interest, all had no recollection of seeing Kislyak at the May 23rd event. Kislyak also does not appear in any of the photos from the event that the office obtained. In the summer of 2016, CNI organized at least two dinners in Washington, D.C. for sessions to meet with experienced foreign policy professionals. It's the Mueller Report. And welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. On the line with us is former Ohio Congressman Bob Ney, author of Sideswiped. Bob, welcome back to the program. What's at the top of your hit parade with regard to the news today? Well, Tom, thank you. The drone obviously is in the top of our news that we're putting out today. There's a lot of stories. The uh, career of China to North Korea, but the number one story really is the drone because it also leads into some actions of Congress and some statements by the Secretary of State. But it was a drone that Iran admits that it shot down, and Iran says it was over its airspace. We, the United States, say that it was in international airspace, and that becomes, of course, the argument. The president made a very puzzling statement, and his statement was that he thought maybe somebody accidentally did it in Iran. Somebody uh, made a mistake, mm-hmm. is what he said. Now, that's interesting. Because, as you know, John Bolton, his national security advisor, will say this is, you know, obviously aggression. The Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, says this is direct aggression. Then you have the president coming out. First he did a tweet, which was aimed at Iran. But then he came out when he was meeting with Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, and said probably somebody made a mistake. And and I find that to be a baffling statement but it sort of fits in with what we hear up on Capitol Hill, which is there's an internal struggle between Pompeo and Bolton mainly on one side, and the president himself and some advisors on the other side, right. where the president's trying to but taper there's, down. You know, Bob, there's, there's two ways to say that. I mean, you know, I saw Trump's tweet, uh, Iran just made a big mistake. I mean, that could be, mm-hmm. Iran just made a big mistake. Or it right. could be, right. Iran, uh, Iran just made a big mistake. I mean, you know, is it is it like, hey, guys, you know, you, you got too close to my face. I'm going to punch you. Or is it, oh, I get it. You know, you, you made an, uh, an error. Well, the, the first one was the Iran made a mistake. I'm going to get him. Right. Then at, at the press pool when he was with the prime minister, it was like, uh, well, I think maybe somebody made a mistake. We're going to look into it. So the, I wonder if Trudeau said that to him. Possibly. I mean, look, the rest of the world, I I was saying this when I was asked today on other stations, you know, to give a breakdown of Iran, and they said, well, you know, this could start a war, uh, multiple countries' war against Iran. I said, no, this is a lone situation. Make no bones about that. It is the United States. Other countries do not want us to get into this, and it's not going to be a follow-along. Well, you know, don't, you think, don't you think Saudi Arabia and Israel want us, to, want us to get into this? Well, of course, yes, those two. But in the Western, actual Western world, Europe, European world, they don't want it. Right. But yes, of course, Saudi Arabia wants a war. Like I said, you know, the, the Saudi uh, royal family, they will sit in Las Vegas and watch us conduct a war, you right. know, which is what they like to do. Uh, they won't be involved themselves. 
because that's the other issue. If we're so upset, as John Bolton says, about the Saudi tankers, let Saudi Arabia go fly their warships. They have them. Let them go do something about it. You know, is that, that's, that's what I hear up on Capitol Hill also. And by the way, Tom, a lot of Republicans are not really expressing the amount of fear they have. Now, you have Senator Tom Cotton, who out and out wants Iran bombed today. Right. But you have a lot of Republicans who are, are starting to wonder what's going to go on, which leads to the, the vote. Uh, that was in the House, you know, I had voted originally, as many people did. You know, I could name, you know, some famous names that voted for that authority uh, for George Bush. Back, back after, right, right after 9-11, yeah. Right. And, exactly. and, and, now, and now the Trump administration is saying that there's al-Qaeda in Iran, which makes no sense. Al-Qaeda is a Sunni group that was, you know, evolved out of uh, Saudi Wahhabism. And, Shia, and, and Iran is a Shia country. They hate al-Qaeda. Um, but uh, it seems to me like the only reason the Trump administration is mentioning al-Qaeda in the context of Iran is because then they can use that 2001 AUMF as justification to strike, Saudi, uh, to strike Iran. Correct. The AUMF specifically mentions al-Qaeda and other entities. Right. And you are exactly correct, Tom. There is no reason to say al-Qaeda and Iran in the same breath. Everybody on Capitol Hill, everybody in the Pentagon, everybody in the rest of the world that follows this, they know Iran hates al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has killed Iranians. They have committed acts of terrorism on Iran itself. So to say that triggered, of course, a lot of speculation in the U.S. House that uh, the Trump administration was going to go to war. So they have now passed a resolution to undo, in the House at least. Now, I don't think it has a lot of life in the Senate, unless, unless the president takes some type of military action, then some members of the Senate, 22 seats are up for grabs, may then try to do something to insulate themselves. Yeah. to protect themselves. Yeah. And so I think that the main point that has to be looked at is that resolution was supposed to be anyway a temporary measure. It has been now used to conduct uh, military exercises in 14 different situations in the last 18 years. Remarkable. So I think the House made a, you know, a very good, uh, good move on that. Yeah, it really does need to be reversed. What else is up? The give and take of Cory Booker and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi has entered the fray oh, to geez. defend Joe Biden. Yeah, okay. All righty, Bob Day with Talk Media News. Thank, Thank you. you, Bob. Tom in Desert Hot Springs, California. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today? I just wonder why our Democratic people in the House and the Senate can't get together and punish this president for all his crimes that he is committing. I think that they are slowly, gradually, carefully walking backwards, uh, heading in that direction, Tom. I mean, you know, I, I don't feel that. Yeah, I, a lot of us don't feel it. I, and that's the thing. I mean, they, they really need to. And, and this is, and Tom, thank you for the call. I mean, this is the thing that the Republicans were so good at. They had nothing on Hillary Clinton. The so-called missing emails are not missing. She turned over all her emails on a thumb drive to the FBI. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they nuked her, her server. But, uh, and those emails were, by the way, private emails. You know, they, 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 she took out the private ones. Uh, they, they had nothing. Uh, the same thing with Benghazi. There was nothing. I mean, it was the Republicans who actually blocked the requested additional funding for, the ben for security at Benghazi during the Bush administration. And Clinton and Obama got the blame for that. So they had nothing. And yet they turned that into two years of show trials that seriously politically damaged both Hillary Clinton and the Democrats.
so this is bizarre. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. Get out there, get active, tag. You're it. There's lots you can do. Share the good word about progressive media. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 